chapter 1, and we'll look this evening at verse 8 all the way down to verse 12. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 to verse 12. We're going to study shame and suffering. Now, the Apostle Paul, as you read this letter, was a man who suffered. He suffered greatly, yet he was not ashamed of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But not only Paul, but there's men throughout church history and women throughout church history who suffered greatly, and yet were not ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ. You could take the great hymn writer William Cooper, who wrote that famous hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Well, Cooper suffered with depression most of his Christian life, yet he was not ashamed of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The question I have for you is, how can Paul and how can William Cooper, who are faced with various degrees of suffering, how can they not be ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, one Puritan Thomas Goodwin says, the remedy for shame and a remedy in suffering is to have a habitual sight of Jesus Christ by the eye of faith. And that's what the Apostle Paul's going to do here in chapter 1, verse 8 through 12. He's going to show Timothy that if he's going to endure hardship and endure suffering for the gospel, it's going to be by the power of God, which is found in the gospel. So notice two things this evening in the text. First, I want you to consider the reality of suffering. The reality of suffering. If you notice, our section in verse 8 to verse 12 has two bookends. And the bookends in our section speak of suffering and not being ashamed of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 8 of chapter 1, Paul says to Timothy, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. So don't be ashamed, Timothy, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So Paul begins by addressing Timothy, endure hardship, suffer for the gospel by the power of God. Don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed of our Lord. And then notice how the section ends in verse 11 to verse 12 in chapter 1. Paul uses his own example. He says in verse 11, For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I've believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So you see in the text, the word of God gives us a bookend. Endure hardship. Don't be ashamed of the Lord. Timothy, press on. Follow my example. I suffered, Timothy, as a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, but I'm not ashamed of the Lord. So it begins with the reality of suffering. Now, the Christian life is one of suffering. Notice back in chapter 1, verse 6 through 7, last week we saw that Paul gives a charge to Timothy to fan and to flame the gift of God that he was given. Notice Chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. Keep using your spiritual gift, Timothy, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Why? Verse 7, For God gave us a spirit not of fear or cowardice, but of power and love 
and self-control. And notice the transition into our text. Verse 8, therefore, that ties back into verse 6 and 7. Timothy, since God has called you to suffer for Christ and to preach the gospel of Christ, and since God has given you a spirit not of cowardice, but of power, and of the love of the Holy Spirit, and of self-control. Therefore, because you've been given the Spirit of God who enables you and makes you sustained in the Christian life, don't be ashamed. Since you've been given much, don't be ashamed of our Lord, about his testimony of what he came to do and what he came to accomplish, nor of me, his prisoner. Notice in chapter 1, verse 16, Onesiphorus Paul says, often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Now, do you feel the pressure of being ashamed of our Lord Jesus Christ? The Holy Spirit has the inspired scriptures written for the church to exhort us in this area to not be ashamed because there's going to be the temptation. Now, if you think of the culture we're living in, I believe it was one preacher I was listening to recently said, we no longer live in a culture that is attacking God. You could look back 20 years ago and there was the attack of God. But now our society wants to completely remove God. It's this godless society. So you don't even have individuals attacking God. But you have individuals who don't even know the true and living God. And they, they, they're godless. And they have no knowledge of who God is. That's the culture we're living in. And because the culture has no clue who God is, they don't care about Christians. They don't care about Christianity. They don't care about the testimony of the Lord and of prisoners that are in prison for the gospel. So there's pressure. They don't care about our well-being as Christians. They really want to devour the church and remove God completely and remove Christianity completely. That's what happens in communist lands. They want to remove God. They want to have God completely removed from every sphere of life, from the family, from the church, from the state, completely. And Paul has a word for us. He says, Timothy, I also lived in a godless generation. I also lived through much suffering. I've been put in prison for my allegiance to Jesus Christ and for the preaching of the gospel. So nothing new here. Christians down through the century have been put in, in prison for the sake of the gospel. Now the question is, how does Paul confidently say in verse 12 that I'm not ashamed? I suffer as I do, but I'm not ashamed. Timothy, you ought not to be ashamed. How does Paul confidently say that as he suffers in Roman prison and awaits his execution, how can he truly say from the bottom of his heart, I'm not ashamed? You can imagine the pressure here. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23 to 29, Paul says that he was near death many times. He was lashed. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. He had sleepless nights. He was in hunger and in thirst. He was without food at times. He was in cold. He had daily pressures. And this man says, I'm not ashamed. I've been almost put to death several times. I've been stoned. I'm not ashamed of, of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 9, Paul says concerning his suffering, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. 
Now, we often say, oh, suffering's so glorious. No, it's not. Paul says it was a sentence of death. It was this horrible thorn in the flesh. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8, Paul says about this thorn that Satan continually pierced his side. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Paul had this throbbing thorn again and again. Lord, why have you given me the sentence of death? You see the paradox. How can this man who says, it seemed like we've been given the sentence of death. I've been given this thorn that will never leave me until glory. Always throbbing, always painful. That ache within my soul. How can that man say, I'm not ashamed? My flesh would say, I'm, I'm ashamed of my suffering. How does this man, how does he endure? Well, notice he gives us the answer. In verse 12 of 2 Timothy 1, he says, I'm not ashamed And he gives us the recipe for, because, notice what he says, because or for I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So how does Paul endure suffering? How does he endure mocking men and women called the apostles the scum of the earth, dung, rubbish they said that they're fools for christ and you can even imagine the church saying paul is this really your hill to die on i mean paul if you weren't so vocal about your christianity you wouldn't have ended up in roman prison you wouldn't have suffered under nero if you just if you just had your private christian life and you don't have to be ashamed paul but you don't have to be so vocal you don't have to go out and preach the gospel in Rome, because that's going to get you in prison. Well, remember, Paul in Philippians said that it actually through my imprisonment, men and women, they were encouraged to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And actually, the whole imperial guard who put Paul in prison, they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul, he's not ashamed. He, he saw God as appointing his hills to die on, and he, and he was simply called to be Faithful. Now notice the reasons, two reasons in verse 12, why he's not ashamed. The first is because he knows who God is. He knows the nature of God. That is the bedrock that sustains his soul. I'm not ashamed. Why? For I know whom I have believed. That is the bedrock of Christianity. Paul's not ashamed of Christ because he knows Christ. He has a living relationship with Christ. He's able to say in Philippians that I have gained Christ, that I know the surpassing worth of Christ, that I'm willing to suffer, miss hardship and suffering and all these things because I consider the as Moses the reproach of Christ far greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. He knows his beauty. He's trusting in Christ alone. That's why he's not ashamed, because he sees who his Savior is. And with such a Savior as Jesus Christ, one ought not to be ashamed. Jesus sought me, the hymn writer says, when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. Why be ashamed of the one who sought your soul when we we were neck deep in sin and death? Why be ashamed of the one who has clothed you in his righteousness and who has bound up your wounds and who has given you a new name? in a new heart, in a new life, and who has set glory before you. Why be ashamed of, 
of the one who sought you when a stranger. Paul says, I know him. I know whom I believed in. I believe in Christ. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That's how he's not ashamed, because he knows who God is. He knows the Savior. And notice the second reason in verse 12. He's also convinced, he says. I know and I'm convinced. I'm convinced that he that is God, that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So he knows it's God who sustains him. He knows that even though he finds himself in a Roman prison, as his body suffers the hardship of of coldness and dampness and the chains, he knows God's sustaining him. He looks weak in the world's eyes. He looks like a man who's only, gained, uh, who's only received loss, that's all he's gained, loss and suffering and weakness. But Paul reminds Timothy that he's convinced that though his outer man is wasting away, God is powerfully at work through his weakness. His power is seen in preserving his gospel. Paul's going to be crucified. He's not crucified. He's going to be martyred. He's going to be put to death. He's going to be executed. But that's not stopping the gospel. The gospel is going to be preserved. Why? Because it's God who's guarding the gospel. It's God who's protecting the gospel. It's God who's advancing the gospel. One commentator says that Paul had suffered for the gospel, and despite his current imprisonment and certainty of his death, This man is fully convinced that God will continue to advance the gospel in his absence. That's why he's not ashamed. I'm going to be taken out. I'm going to depart and be with Christ. And the gospel's going to go on. The gospel's not going to stop because God's going to raise up Timothy. God's going to raise up another servant. God's going to raise up a new generation to carry on the baton of the gospel from the apostles and establish the church, and the church is going to go to the nations. So Paul, he's not ashamed because he knows the work of the gospel, it's God's work. It's God's business. His glory is tied up in it. He will receive the reward of his suffering. Now you say, well, I see Paul suffering, and there's no way I could endure that. There's no way I could be in a prison cell and await my execution and say with Paul that I'm not ashamed because I know who I believe in, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard this gospel in my life. I don't think I'd think that way. What do we do as we contemplate the apostle Paul? How do we endure? Well, you could think of growing up as a child. Your parents would give you something to carry, But they wouldn't give you a heavy load. Maybe later on when you're more mature and your shoulders are more broad, they'll give you a greater load to carry because you're more mature. Well, we see in this text, in our second point, that the way we endure by the power of God and the way we're not going to be ashamed of the gospel is through Christian maturity. That as we seek to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, We're going to grow more mature in Christ, and by virtue of that, we're going to be able to endure more for Jesus Christ. So we begin with these two bookends. Consider the reality of suffering. Paul says, Timothy, don't be ashamed, verse 8. Suffer by the gospel. 
by the power of God share in that? How does he share in that? How does he suffer and endure by the power of God? Well, this leads to our second point. Not only must we consider the reality of suffering, but we must consider the gospel we believe and proclaim. Notice the two bookends, verse 8 to verse 12 on suffering. What's in the middle there? What's in the middle from verse 9 all the way to verse 10? You notice the meat, the substance of this section is it's about our Lord Jesus Christ. You notice the meat within the sandwich, the meat between suffering is Christ and him crucified. It's pointing us to our Lord Jesus Christ. Why does Paul do that? Because he realizes that the only way we can grow in Christian maturity is to consider each day who Christ is. We don't ever outgrow that. And so Paul's remedy to help Timothy not be ashamed is to consider the weight of his love and consider the depth of his love. Notice verse 8. He says to Timothy, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Well, where's the power of God on display? We saw this morning, Romans 1.16. The gospel... The good news of what Jesus Christ has done is the power of God unto salvation. So you can imagine here, in a greater sense, Paul says, Timothy, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of the gospel. Share in suffering by meditating on all, what, on all of what Christ has done for you. And notice he does that. Notice verse 9. He says, who saved us? Here's the power of God in the gospel. Christ saved us, verse 9, and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested, verse 10, through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You see the meat within the sandwich. You see The bookends of suffering and not being ashamed. Verse 8 and verse 12. And in the heart of this text, it's all about Jesus Christ. Timothy, don't be ashamed of him. Here, I'm going to lay out before you, Timothy, the testimony of what Christ has done for you. Because it's as you meditate on that, on the power of God revealed in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. It's through that by which you'll be able to endure suffering. Now, one commentator says on these verses, verse 9 to 11, Dr. Locke, he says that every word here is emphasizing the power which has been given to Christians. It's a power which has done what men cannot do for themselves. This is a power that has acted out of love for man, which has destroyed his chief enemy and given him life and therefore gives strength to face suffering And death, that's Paul's remedy. I'm going to lay before you, Timothy, the one who has defeated your chief enemy. I'm going to lay before you the one who has done all for you. And as you meditate on the one who has defeated your greatest enemy, you're going to realize that you should not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Now notice how Paul breaks down verse 9 to 11 here as he lays before us the Savior who's defeated our chief enemy and given us life. Notice in verse 9, 
he actually begins in eternity past. You think, well, why doesn't he just begin with the life and the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, Paul wants to remind Timothy that Christ's love for him goes way back to eternity past. Notice the language here in verse 9 again. Paul brings our mind to eternity past. He says in verse 9, God who saved us and called us to a holy, holy calling, not because of our works, but of his own purpose and grace. And then notice this, which he gave us when? When Christ became incarnate? When Christ died on the cross? Is that when he gave you grace? Notice Paul says, look back to eternity, Timothy. See the depth of his love. He says here in verse 9, he gave us this grace in Christ before the ages began. Now I want you to look for a moment at Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, verse 3 to 4. Again, we see Paul reminding the Ephesian believers that the love of God for them in Christ, it has no beginning. It has no end. It is this infinite, this eternal love. Notice Ephesians 1, verse 3 to 4. Paul praises God. He says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and notice, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then notice the same language here, as Paul said to Timothy, verse 4. Even as he chose us in him, he called us in Christ before the foundation of the world, before he created the heavens and the earth and eternity past. Paul says, the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. For what great purpose? That we should be holy, devoted to the Lord, blameless before him, and in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And what's the great end of all this redeeming love of, of God in Christ? Well, notice it's according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us and the beloved. Well, that's what Paul's reminding Timothy of. Timothy, if you're not going to be ashamed of your Lord, remember his love for you. You're going to find yourself in hard circumstances. You're going to be tempted to think, as Paul said in Romans 8, that this trial is going to separate you from the love of, of Christ. You're going to think that tribulations and persecution... And yes, even the sword, you're going to be tempted to think that maybe that's going to slice you away from the love of, of Christ and separate you from this love. But Paul says, remember, Timothy, the Lord, the triune God, called you. He, he saved you before you were even in your mother's womb. He, he called you and set his love upon you in eternity past. His love did not begin at the cross for you, but his love has no beginning and it has no end. There's never a point in time where God has not loved you, Christian. In Jeremiah 31, verse 3, the Lord says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. This eternal love. John 15, verse 6, Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you. Why is that good news for one who's tempted to be ashamed of our Lord and one who is tempted to be ashamed of our suffering. Well, we know that even when we don't see God's smiling face, the hymn writer says we rest on his 
unchanging grace. Because his love is an eternal love, we know his love for us is a fixed love. It's a love that does not increase and it's a love that does not decrease. It is this infinite love and eternal love. And Paul says, Timothy, remember that. When everything hides his lovely face, rest on his unchanging grace. That is how you will not be ashamed of the Lord, of his servants, of suffering. In 1774, John Newton, he was writing to a friend, and John Newton was going through a great deal of suffering. And Newton was asked by John Ryland Jr., how are you doing? And Newton, he responded with honesty. He said, do you ask how it is with me? Well, just as the weather is this morning, my heart is cold as snow underfoot and cloudy as the sky over my head, not a beam of sunshine in my soul today, but it is a mercy to have daylight. I know it will not always be winter, though it has been a long winter within my soul. That's a man who understands that the love of God for him in Christ is this eternal love. He, he's has this winter night of the soul. He, he doesn't see the smiling face of God, but Newton, he rests on God's unchanging grace and says, it's not always going to be night. Even if the rest of my life in this world is a, a, a day of, and period of darkness and clouds over, one day I'm going to see the sun of righteousness and glory, and that, that cloud of darkness will be eternally removed, forever gone. That, that veil of tears will be fully wiped away. The hymn writer, Yet not I, but Christ through me, says that the night is dark, but I am not forsaken. For by my side the Savior, he will stay. So do you not want to be ashamed of your Lord? Remember, his love has no beginning for you, Christian. Now notice the second aspect. Paul goes from eternity past to time and space in verse 10. Notice the wording. 2 Timothy 1 verse 10 talking about Christ, which now has been manifested where? Through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. So Paul says the climax of God's love for you can be clearly seen where? Well, he says it's been manifested through the appearing of our Savior. So you want to know God's love for you and that he loves you. Paul says, Timothy, look at the incarnation. That's what he's speaking of here. That word appearing is used in Titus by the Apostle Paul. Titus 3, verse 4 to 7. The appearing is speaking about the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in time and space, Paul says, remember the depth of God's love for you. That the Father loved you and sent his Son to go into this world to die for you. And the son didn't go with his hands tied behind his back, but he voluntarily went into this world. And he said, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. That I've come as the good shepherd to lay my life down for the sheep. Rather than they perish and rather than they suffer eternally the wrath that's due their account. I'll take it. I'll bear it. I'll drink the cup of wrath. So Paul says, Timothy, remember this grace, this love it's clearly seen in the incarnation that the Savior, the eternal Son of God, would, would humble himself to the point of taking on the form of a man to be the God-man, truly God and truly man in one person on this great mission to defeat your greatest enemy, 
to go to the grave as your forerunner, to rise from the third day, and to say that one day you will be raised to everlasting life. Notice why he came. Paul gives us a second reason in time and space. Notice verse 10. He appeared for what? Notice, he appeared, the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death. So Paul's saying, Timothy, I'm going to be executed. I'm going to face that grim enemy of death. But remember, Christ came into this world to abolish death. That enemy death, it's coming for every single one of us because of the fall, even in Christ. Because we have a fallen nature, our body physically has to die unless the Lord returns. But this gospel shows us that though the body will lay in the grave, what does Jesus Christ offer? He offers spiritual life. So the moment we believe in Christ, we are given eternal life, but we still have to, in a sense, deal with this body of sin and death that it will be laid in the grave. So what what does it mean then that he's abolished death? Well, in one sense, yes, he has completely. And in another sense, we await that final abolishment of death. Bill Mount says that while Timothy and all believers in Christ must await the final consummation to see death completely destroyed, in essence, death has already been destroyed by Christ's work. Believers can live their lives in complete assurance of what has happened and what will happen. John Owen says Christ brought the death to death in the death of Christ. So The moment we believed upon Jesus Christ, we were given eternal life. We know that when we die, our body will lay in the grave, but our our spirit will go directly to the Lord's presence. And one day on that day of resurrection, what will happen? The believer in Jesus Christ will be raised to everlasting glory with a resurrected body, and the unbeliever will be raised to everlasting destruction with a body fit for the eternal flames of God's wrath. Now, Paul encourages Timothy because death is the greatest enemy. Ten out of ten people die. No one can escape that penalty. But through Jesus Christ, he offers an escape. He's abolished death. It's a stepping stone for the Christian. When our body lays in the grave, that's a stepping stone into the celestial city. It's the Jordan River that we must all pass into Emmanuel's land. So the Christian has this great hope of glory, that the body they may kill, but one day we're going to be raised from the grave, and to depart is to be with Christ, Paul says, which is far better. But not only did he come to abolish death through his cross work, and on that great day once and for all, but notice thirdly, verse 10, he came to bring life and immortality. Notice the flow here. Verse 10, which has now been appeared, this grace, it's been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So through the message and the person and the work of Jesus Christ, Paul says he's brought life and immortality. Now those two words, they work together to simply speak of eternal life, that that Jesus Christ came to abolish death and bring life, eternal life, without end for his people. Jesus says in John 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. 
Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. He's abolished death. He brings eternal life. And then one more text, John 6, 35. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You see why Paul's not ashamed? Because Christ did all this for him. He abolished Paul's ultimate death. He gave him life. And so Paul says, Timothy, remember the substance of Christianity. Remember, though you will be tempted to be ashamed of Christ, and though you're going to have to suffer for Christ, Timothy, suffer by the power of the gospel, the power of God. And how do we do that? We meditate on Jesus Christ. Now, as we conclude here, are you terrified of death? If you're here this evening and you know if you die tonight, you'll go straight to hell. Well, I offer you the one who's abolished death. I offer you the one who's conquered the grave. I offer you the one in whom the grave could not hold. The one who rose to triumph over the grave and over death and offers life. Come to him. He says, look to me and live. That's the message of the gospel. Whoever believes in me shall not die. Now, Christian... As we consider the reality of suffering, and we all have that appointed for us, there's going to be cups for us to drink, bitter cups, different degrees, different forms, and we consider the gospel we believe and proclaim. How do we respond in light of this? Well, Samuel Rutherford, a man who suffered greatly, a man who was exiled for allegiance to Christ, he wrote the wonderful poem and said, O Christ, he is the fountain. The deep, deep well of love, the streams of earth I've tasted. More deep I'll drink above. There too an ocean fullness. His mercy doth expand. And glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. How does, how does Rutherford say that? Well, he knows that if he's going to taste the streams of this world and drink that down like Kool-Aid, he's going to be ashamed of Christ. He's going to not suffer well for Christ, but Rutherford says Christ is the fountain. And that's what Paul's saying to Timothy. He's the fountain. He's the fountain of life. He's abolished death. He brings eternal life. Drink deep above. Meditate on him. Meditate on his mercy. Meditate on the one who's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. You're going to have people that will abandon you in this life and hurt you in this life. But when you know the one who's closer than a brother, the one who says, I'll never leave you and or forsake you, well, you, you won't be ashamed of Christ. You think of the one who defeated your greatest enemy. You think of the one who supplies daily power and grace and mercy in himself. He says, he says come to me, open, open your mouth wide and I'll fill it. Drink deeply of me by faith and out of your heart will flow streams of living water. Well, Christian, the essence of Christianity is our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we face shame and suffering? It's remembering Jesus Christ. May he help us to do that this week. May he help us this year. May he help us till we get to glory and to see his lovely face. Let's pray and Thank God for his word. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for this letter in 2 Timothy that, that shows us what Christ came to do, that he uh, defeated our enemy, that he has given us 
this great hope of glory. We pray, Lord, that you would sustain each and every one of us here this evening for the week to come. Lord, that we would remember Jesus, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we pray, Lord, that you would empower us and lift us, sustain us, 